guys for reminding us of that truth. Uh, hey, welcome to Christ Community Church. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you guys for joining us today, whether you're worshiping with us in person uh, or online. Thanks for joining us to worship the resurrected King today. Um, we, we just came off Easter Sunday. I don't know if you guys can think back that whole week, but we just, we just came off Easter Sunday. Uh, and Easter has traditionally been called in America the holiest day of the year. Um, but in pastor world, they call it the Super Bowl of church ministry, uh, which is always a little disconcerting when you're a Bills fan. Um, but, but as we saw, Super Bowl or not, as we saw last week, Good Friday and Easter Sunday changed absolutely everything. The death and the resurrection of Jesus is the central pivotal event in all of history. That's what we celebrate at Easter. But now I want to start by asking the question, so what? Like, like, so what? Our God robbed the grave. That's amazing. And then the question becomes, well, so what? See, I don't know where you are today. Some of us Maybe we have intellectual questions about the resurrection. Maybe we wonder, did it really happen? And if you have questions about that, I would love to set up a time to talk with you about that. But for others of us in this room or watching online, maybe we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But the truth is, if we're honest, we don't really see why it matters. See, for you, it's not so much that the resurrection seems untrue. It just seems irrelevant. I mean, we celebrated Easter last Sunday. And then last Monday, we, or this past Monday, we went back to real jobs in the real world with real problems and real struggles. And the question is, what difference then does, e- does Easter make in real life? And so over the next five weeks, that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at passages of scripture that answer that question. Now, here's the thing. In one sense, the entire New Testament was written to answer that question. So obviously, we're not going to be hitting everything today. But these are some key passages that we're going to be looking at over the next five weeks that tell us what the resurrection means for you and me in the here and now. And this week, we're going to be starting out in 1 Peter chapter 1, because what Peter shows us really throughout his letter of 1 Peter is that the resurrection of Jesus is not just something that happened in the past, and it's not just something that's going to happen in the future. It's something that changes our lives in the here and now. As we just sang, the resurrected king is resurrecting me. And so fundamentally, what, what Peter shows us in this passage today is that the resurrection of Jesus creates hope. And hope is not just a nice, warm, fuzzy, sentimental feeling. Hope is a rock-solid reality that is grounded in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And resurrection hope changes everything. And so over the next five, six weeks as we're in this series, we're going to be asking the question, what, what does it look like when the historical fact of the resurrection makes its way into my lived experience? When the resurrection stops just being something that I believe and starts being something that I live. And that's what this passage in 1 Peter chapter 1 is all about. So listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things which have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, that's a mouthful there, but in a nutshell, what Peter is showing us is that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And he's going to show us in this passage three things about this resurrection hope and three ways that resurrection hope changes everything. He's going to show us that resurrection hope gives us a new identity, resurrection hope gives us a new confidence, and resurrection hope gives us a new joy, a new identity, a new confidence, and a new joy. First, resurrection hope gives us a new identity. Look how Peter addresses his readers. First Peter chapter one, verse one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. So Peter's writing to people in present day Turkey, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And notice what, what he calls them here. He says, you are elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, what Peter's doing here is he's looking back to the Hebrew scriptures and he's reminding them back in the Hebrew scriptures, you can read the story about how the people of Israel were conquered by the Babylonian empire and they were carried off into exile and they had to learn how to live as the people of God in a foreign land, in a land that was hostile to the way, their way of thinking and their way of believing and, and their way of living. And Peter says, that's the situation that Christians find themselves in. Living in a land hostile to their faith. Uh, Their hope is in Christ. So their hope in Christ has put them at odds with some elements of the culture around them. That God has made them citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so there's a sense in which they're never completely at home in the kingdoms of this world. Their lives are distinct from their neighbors. They're exiles and some people don't like it. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to Southeast Asia and to, to train pastors in a closed context there. One of the pastors in the class that I was teaching estimated that he's been to prison at least 70 times for preaching the gospel. So it actually got to the point where he knew that the police were coming for him and he would pack a sleeping bag so he would have something to sleep on in his jail cell. Another pastor had had held a prominent position in the government before he came to Christ and he became a follower of Jesus and he lost his job and he was constantly under government surveillance. I actually had the opportunity to preach in the church that was in his home. They drove us around the city for over an hour under cover of night just to make sure that no one was following us. One morning we were preparing to to begin class and one of the pastors asked for prayer for a, a family in his congregation He just found out while he was away at the class, he found out that this family had literally been run out of town. 
A mob burned their house to the ground and ran them out of the village, and the police just stood by and watched it. Now, that, that situation is pretty similar to what these original readers in First Peter would have been looking at. And, and as I met with these men, and as I heard their stories, and as I saw them devour the scriptures, I was struck by how filled they were with hope. And I had to ask myself, why can they endure prison and angry mobs and their houses being burned to the ground and government surveillance, and I complain about the smallest inconvenience? It seems so strange to me. But then I went back to the New Testament and I realized that they were not the anomaly. I'm the anomaly. They were just living the, the Christian life that the New Testament talks about. The normal Christian life that the New Testament talks about is a life of hope in the face of persecution. And the fact that I've never actually experienced persecution for my faith doesn't make, me, doesn't make them the anomaly. It makes me the anomaly. See, the early followers of Jesus often found themselves ostracized and imprisoned and oppressed and sometimes even executed for the sake of the gospel. And that's one of the reasons that the New Testament talks so much about hope. Because if you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, you'll always be a little bit out of place in the world. You'll always be in exile. If you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, then you've recognized that Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, then popular opinion is not. If Jesus is Lord and he is your greatest treasure, then you will be out of step with a culture that treats the acquisition of more stuff as the good life. If Jesus is Lord and he really laid down his life for us at the cross, then we will be out of step with a culture that, that teaches us to insist on our rights and our way. If Jesus is Lord, then he will be Lord of every aspect of our lives, even when our culture teaches us to play by our own rules. Because friends, if Jesus is Lord, then I am not. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We live with the mindset and the values and the hope of the kingdom of heaven. And that makes us distinct. That makes us different from the world around us. Now listen, that does not mean that we stop loving the people around us. As a matter of fact, it's our distinctness, it's our differentness that enables us to work for the good of others. Because the thing is, if you're just like everybody else, if you just think like everyone else and live like everyone else, then you won't do anyone any good. If you want to make a difference, you got to be different. If we want to live for the glory of God and the good of Chautauqua County, then we cannot be afraid to go against the grain. As many of you guys know, my wife Tracy is from Birmingham, Alabama. Now, I had never been to the great state of Alabama uh, before I met her, but shortly after we met, I go down, I visit her, we're in Birmingham, and, and she says, what do you want to do? And I, like, I have no idea. I've never been to Birmingham. But one of the things I knew I wanted to visit, the one place I knew I wanted to go was the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. I'd studied the, the civil rights movement, but I had never personally been to the South. I'd never seen the places where all these things happen. So we go into the, into, the, into the institute, and probably for me, the most fascinating and most moving part of the exhibit uh, is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s jail cell from the Birmingham City Jail. It's actually preserved intact in the Civil Rights Institute. So for those of you guys who don't know the background, Dr. King was arrested during a protest in Birmingham in 1963. That's when he writes his famous letter from the Birmingham City Jail. Historical scholars say that it's probably the most complete manifesto of the civil rights movement. But what it actually was, was it was a letter. 
It was a letter that, that Dr. King wrote to white clergymen in the South. It was a letter to pastors where he calls the church to stop acquiescing to the status quo, to stop being just like the culture around them, to stand up and to be different, to start acting like what they are, to start acting like citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Listen to what he says. He says, there was a time when the church was very powerful and the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. Man, what if that could be said about us at Christ Community Church? What if we're small in number but big in commitment? What if if we were a thermostat instead of a thermometer? What if we were so God-intoxicated that we couldn't be astronomically intimidated? That even if we're going against the grain, even if it seems that the world is against us, we fear God rather than man. Listen, the early church wasn't wealthy. They didn't hold positions of power and influence, but they changed their cities and they changed their world. And one of the major factors in their effectiveness was the fact that they were distinct. They knew that they were exiles and they lived like it. Peter says, you have a new identity. You are an exile. But he says, you're not just an exile. You are elect exiles, chosen exiles, the chosen people of God. You might be hated by men, but you've been loved by God. You might be rejected by men, but you are treasured by God. The world might marginalize you, but God has brought you in. Look at verse two. You are elect exiles, how? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. What what Peter is saying there is he is saying the Father chose you and the Spirit set you apart so that you would recognize Jesus as Lord and be cleansed with his blood. All three persons of the Trinity have conspired together to bring you and me into the people of God and to give us an indestructible hope. And it was that reality, that reality of what God had done for them in Christ that produced that God intoxication in them. They were so intoxicated with God that they couldn't be intimidated by men. Resurrection hope made him different. It made him distinct. It gave him a new identity. And it doesn't just give us a new identity. Resurrection hope gives us a new confidence. It gives us a new confidence. And, and here's why they had confidence. Because their confidence was no longer in themselves. Their confidence was no longer in their government. It was no longer in their families. It was no longer in their wealth or their positions in society. Their confidence now was in the God who raises the dead. God himself is the one who has brought them to salvation. Resurrection hope is grounded in something God did for us in history, in the past. Look at verse three. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He says, God has caused you to be born again by his great mercy. It's not based on your performance. It's based on his mercy. And this is, this is really important because next week we're going to continue in 1 Peter 1. And at the end of 1 Peter 1, Peter's going to be calling us to holiness and obedience and perseverance. But, but the motivation for all of that is the mercy of God. God's mercy is what compels us to live holy lives. God's mercy is what enables us to persevere to the end. This is what makes the gospel different from every other religion. Religion says, I do this so that God will be merciful to me. The gospel says, I do this because God has already been merciful to me. The religion says, I hope that God will accept me because of what I do for him. The gospel says, I have hope no matter what comes my way in life and death because of what God has done for me. Peter says, by his mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what sets Christian hope apart from all other hope. Hope for us as followers of Jesus is not wishful thinking. Hope for us is confident anticipation. The Bible tells us in Romans 8 that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. So what that means is that the resurrection of Jesus is not just a cool magic trick. Jesus shows us, the resurrection shows us our future. It shows us that his future is our future. So our hope is grounded in something that actually happened in history, but it's not just grounded in the past. It points us to the future. Look at verse four. He says, you have been called to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, again, in the Hebrew scriptures, the inheritance referred to the promised land. God brings the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He says, I'm gonna pro- I promise you this land where you will live as my people. But for Christians, the promised land is so much bigger than that. For Christians, the promised land is the recognition that God promises to one day renew all things. He will set creation free from sin and death and corruption. He will eradicate evil and poverty and disease and injustice. He will set all things right and he will make all things new. He will literally bring heaven down to earth. In the midst of a world that is filled with injustice and death and disease, God promises that something better is coming. And Peter says it's going to be imperishable. It's going to be undefiled. It's going to be unfading. Let me just ask you, just to be honest with yourself, how many of us have hoped in things that ended up perishing, that were corrupted, that were fading away? And we think, if I can just have that next thing, if I can have the new car, if I can have the new job, if I can have the new relationship, then everything's going to be all right. But it never is. The new relationship leaves us with unfulfilled expectations. The new job disappoints us. The new car gets old and your kids grind Cheez-Its into the upholstery. The, The novelty of all of these things wears off, right? It fades away. And so what do we do? We go out looking for something new. But the inheritance that God promises us will never grow old and it'll never disappoint and it'll never fade away. 
Give us ever-increasing joy for all of eternity. And not only does God keep the inheritance for the future, he guards us in the present. Look at verse 5. He says, the inheritance is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded right now as we sit here being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God keeps the inheritance for us and he keeps us for the inheritance. God gives us faith in the first place and he preserves our faith to the end. He sustains our faith. He guards our faith. He refuses to let us go. That is such good news because for me personally, so often my faith is weak. So often I feel like I'm just holding on by a thread. But I've also been following Jesus long enough that I can look back and I can see time and time and time again where God held on to me in spite of my weak faith. And maybe today you're finding it difficult to trust God. Maybe today you feel like you're holding on by a thread. But the good news is when you feel like you are barely holding on to God, God is holding on to you. God is guarding you by his power even when you are weak. And so just come to him and be honest about that today. God, I feel like I'm holding on by a thread, so hold on to me. God, my faith is weak, so help my unbelief. That's ultimately where our confidence lies. Our confidence is not in our strength or our power or even our faithfulness. Our confidence is in the faithfulness and the strength and the power of the God who guards us and keeps us. Resurrection hope gives us a new identity. Resurrection hope gives us a new confidence. Finally, resurrection hope gives us a new joy. A new joy, verse six. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when you have confidence that God raised Jesus from the dead, and when you know that his future is your future, then that enables you to endure anything in the here and now. It gives you the kind of joy that can't be explained by anything other than the fact that God raises the dead. And and Peter says that one of the ways that God guards our faith is actually by bringing trials into our lives. Now, that seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Like we think if God's going to guard our faith, he's going to keep us from the trials. But that's not what you see. Peter says in verse 6, he says it's actually necessary that we go through trials so that our faith can be purified, he says, by fire. In the ancient world, they would purify gold with fire. They would, they would heat it up. All the impurities would rise to the top, and then they would scrape all the impurities off the top, and what was left was pure gold. Peter says, that's what God is doing with you. It's purifying you. It's refining you. He is making you into something breathtakingly Beautiful. So friends, regardless of what you're walking through right now, no matter how painful or ugly or heartbreaking it is, if you belong to Jesus, you can have confidence that he is using it to make you something more beautiful than you could ever possibly imagine. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in Manhattan, says it this way. He says, if you belong to Jesus, everything that happens to you ultimately happens for you. (laughs) 
Everything that happens to you ultimately happens for you. One of the things I noticed quickly after becoming a parent is that all three of my kids think that they're smarter than me. I'm sure no one else has had that experience here, but from from the time they were babies, they were convinced that they knew what was best for them. So I try to give them a bath, they act like I'm trying to drown them. I try to give them medicine, they act like I'm trying to poison them. I try to feed them, they act like I'm trying to kill them. Now I promise you, I was only doing those things for the good of my kids, but they didn't see it that way. They didn't understand it because they didn't understand all the things that I understood. And yet, so many times in my life, I have found myself doubting my heavenly father, forgetting that he knows better than I do, that I just don't understand everything that he understands. I am full of sin and selfishness. I make all kinds of mistakes, but I love my kids, and I will do everything in my power to do what's best for them. But how much more can I trust my heavenly father? It's perfectly good perfectly loving, who never makes a mistake. If I could, I would move heaven and earth for my kids. But I have a father who created the heavens and the earth, who gave his own son for me. I can trust him with everything. So please hear me. If you are a child of God, if you are resting in Jesus to bring you to God, your father loves you. And he will only and always do what is best for you. When you can't trust anything else in the world, you can trust that. Because the resurrection of Jesus shows us that even when it feels like God is killing you, he's making you more alive than ever before. Look at the result, verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found a result in what? Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that's really important for exiles to remember. That's really important for those of us who don't quite fit in this world because why are we sometimes tempted to stop following Christ? Partly, at least, because we want the praise of other people. Why do we not honor Christ when it's unpopular? Because we want to be honored by other people. Why do we not glorify Christ in those situations maybe where someone is turned off by the gospel because we want the glory of men rather than the glory that comes from God? See, friends, you and I are hardwired to live for glory. That is the way God has made us. We will seek glory and honor and praise somehow. That is what drives some of us to curate our social media profiles or maybe to post that incendiary post on Facebook because because we crave that dopamine hit from all the likes we get on the status. This is why some of us feel the need to win every argument because we crave the honor of being the smartest person in the room. This is what drives some of us to be impatient with our kids or our spouse because we want the glory that comes from having the perfect family. This is why some of us can't admit our faults, can't be honest about our sins and our struggles, can't admit when we're wrong because we, we crave the praise and the glory and the honor of, of being seen as having it all together. And so we feel this need to posture and pretend because we want glory and honor and praise that comes from the opinion of others. But the gospel tells us you don't have to hide. And you don't have to pretend and you don't have to posture. Jesus has cleansed you with his blood. The father has chosen you. He has loved you in eternity past before time with full knowledge of the worst about you. His love for you is utterly realistic. He knows the worst about you and he has chosen to love you 
anyway. And because of that, our lives are filled with joy. Look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, true saving faith is where God gives you the ability to see the invisible. It means that Jesus is more real and more precious than anything else. So you love him even though you've never seen him. And even in the midst of suffering, he fills you with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The true saving faith enables you to taste and see that the Lord is good. It shows you that Jesus is your greatest treasure, that he is your greatest joy. And so that means that you have a joy that can't be taken away by anything in life or death because Jesus has conquered death to give us life. And look how amazing this salvation is. Just look at verse 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, there's a lot in those three verses. I just want to focus, though, on that last phrase, things into which angels long to look. Think about that. The angels of heaven who are worshiping in the presence of God himself, they are absolutely astounded by God's love for us. They are astonished to see the salvation that Jesus is bringing us. Like right now, the angels of heaven are standing on their tiptoes, looking over the edge of heaven, saying, look how much God loves him. Look how much God loves her. God's love for you and me blows their minds. The angels of heaven are currently trying to wrap their brains around how much God loves you. So what that means is that whatever comes your way, ostracism or oppression, pain or trials, family problems, financial problems, Divorce, disease, death itself, whatever comes your way, you know that you have a father who loves you perfectly, who is determined to raise you up with Christ and to give you all things in him. He has given us a hope that conquered death. That kind of hope changes everything. All right, let's pray. Father, when we consider your love for us, when we consider the hope that we have in Christ, the salvation that you've brought us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we want to join with the angels of heaven in, in looking into it, in marveling at it, in being astounded by it. God, if we're honest, that's not the way that so many of us experience life on a daily basis. We, we don't think about what you've done for us in Christ. We don't rejoice in what you've done for us in Christ. We, 
We don't live with the new identity you've given us. We, we, we live with those old identities. We don't live with the new confidence that you've given us, but we put our confidence in other things that can never really give us true confidence and hope. We don't live with the new joy that you've given us. We, we find our joy in other things, and our joy is fleeting because it's always based on all of these other things that are constantly fading away. So we pray that you would teach us of the hope that we have in Christ, and not just teach it to us intellectually, but make it a lived reality in our lives. Let us experience it as a living hope, that we would experience the fact that the resurrected King is resurrecting us and giving us a hope that nothing in life or death can take away. We pray it in his name, amen. Um, Key verse for this week is 1 Peter chapter 1, Verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so I encourage you, take that verse with you this week, think about it, meditate on it, memorize it, and then seek to live with that hope this week. Send you out with our benediction. Benediction is just a word of blessing for the road. This comes from Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Peace be with you. Have a great week.